my name is Sarah Probst, and I am a licensed mental health trauma counselor in Portland, Oregon. Um, I have a private practice here called NUMA Counseling. That's P-N-E-U-M-A Counseling. NUMA is the Greek word for spirit. Um, I also attend se- attended seminary where I studied ministry and leadership um, before I got my master's in counseling. And I have about 500 postgraduate hours in neuroscientific approaches to trauma therapy, including EMDR, neurofeedback, and lifespan integration therapy. Um, I work with a variety of clients, many of whom have experienced sexual abuse and trauma, and many Christian singles who are struggling with their own sexuality and singleness in, in this culture. I am also single, and I have never been married, with no children, and I'm 48 years old, which, being 48 and unmarried used to be my greatest fear, but now it's possibly my greatest blessing. Um, So today, I have been assigned the task of speaking to you about singleness and sexuality, which is a tremendous topic, but we're going to try to explore some of the areas of that subject. And in recent years, the concept of sexuality in the Christian culture has been very shaming and uninformative for the most part. Um, Most of my clients fall into one of four categories when it comes to sex outside of marriage. They, number one, abstain out of legalistic obedience, but do not fully understand why they're abstaining. So perhaps they were a part of the purity culture, or they were um, a part of a legalistic church that really shamed and degraded people who participated in sex, and that is really their main motivator for being abstinent. So that's the first category. The second category is individuals who abstained from sex and are single, um, initially abstaining in a relationship, and perhaps will wait weeks or even months to engage in sex, but are not fully convinced that they will wait for marriage or that that's even necessary. The third category um, is individuals who have little or no understanding of any reason for abstinence and therefore just don't do it. They reject the notion completely and might even consider it to be an oppression. And then finally, number four, um, individuals who have sex addictions um, or engage in um, sex as vocation due to various reasons, including neglect, abuse, um, and and they often engage in open relationships. And that would be kind of the far end of the spectrum. So I just want to kind of hold those four categories together as we move through this 
this topic um, so that you can kind of examine yourself and see where you fall. What is your theory about singleness and sexuality? What does the culture tell us and what are your own ideas and what have you been taught? And ultimately, um, again, while the topic of sexuality is extremely broad, we will attempt to explore three questions. The first question is, was Jesus single? Um, a lot of people, when they find out that I'm not married, they love to tell me that Jesus was single. And I just respond with, that is terrible theology. I do not believe that Jesus was single, and we'll go through, through all of that. Um, the other question, number two, is why is sexual dysfunction and singleness simultaneously on the rise? So there's um, increasing amounts of dysfunction sexually, sexual addictions, pornography addictions, um, prostitution, etc. And it seems to run uh, congruent with singleness, as fewer and fewer people are getting married in our in our culture. Over half Americans are not married. So we'll, we'll talk about that as well. And then the third question we hope to address is why does God promote abstinence? Again, most people that I speak with don't really have a good sound theology that's really motivating them to to purity or to abstinence. And so I really hope to explain why. Why does God promote abstinence? What is a motivating factor for staying pure and how can we do that? And then at the end, we will discuss some, um, some action steps for moving forward. So let's go ahead and dive in. You should have um, a, a sheet attached to I'm not sure <laughs> due to COVID we're just I'm actually just sitting in an office speaking into a, a little recording device today um, which is strange so please bear with me but you should have a handout accompanying this this session um, so first we're going to talk about was Jesus single and we can't really understand if Jesus was single um, without really understanding what is singleness. And so we must first define singleness. And singleness is, by definition, to be unmarried. Um, so in order to understand singleness, we will have to first understand marriage. The idea of singleness cannot exist without the concept of marriage. So what is the theology of marriage? What does the Bible say about marriage? Humans are built anatomically for marriage. We do know that. And the theme of marriage is pervasive throughout Scripture, both metaphorically and, and literally. So God opens and closes the Bible with a marriage. It's literally the bookends um, of Scripture. So the very first marriage is obviously Adam and Eve. They represent the first covenant marriage. In Genesis 2, beginning in verse 20, it says, But for Adam no suitable helper was found. 
So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was asleep, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And that's very interesting that that's mentioned. No shame, nakedness, this vulnerability, this organic design of marriage where there's no shame, there's no brokenness, they're completely naked and vulnerable in front of each other, sexually even, and there, there's, no, there's no notion of shame. So that's kind of the introduction to marriage. And then we proceed through the fall, the Old Testament, and we come to a book, a book called Malachi. And it's interesting because God tells us there that there is a portion of his spirit in the marriage union. So in the Old Testament, where the, the spirit of God had not been yet poured out on all flesh, um, and it wasn't supposedly easily accessible all over the place, Jesus, or, or God here, says... Um, that did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? So he's insinuating, if not explicitly saying, that there is a portion of the Holy Spirit of God himself in every marriage covenant. And we'll talk a little bit more about that um, as we go on. So that's, that's another very pertinent fact to consider theologically. Um, and then the theme of marriage continues, uh, begins to be a, a little bit more metaphoric in the New Testament. Ephesians 5 says, Husband loves you, Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without splot, spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands you should love husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So here we see that when Christ chose to create a metaphor within humanity of the gospel, he invented marriage to be a microcosm of Jesus. He's, he's comparing the, the gospel of Jesus, the giving himself up of, of literally everything that he had, including his life, for his wife, for the bride of Christ, the church, and how he he set this metaphoric microchasm in humanity, and marriage is supposed to reflect and resemble that. And it's supposed to be a beacon in a dark world of 
of the gospel. Um, and so it's interesting because the Bible talks about how marriage to each other, um, human marriage, reflects the gospel. And so that brings us to the question, so if you aren't married to a human, are you able to reflect the gospel in, in the world? Um, and I would say absolutely. This is, you know, it's by no means suggesting that we cannot reflect Christ to the world unless we are married. I think it's actually quite the opposite. I believe that if, as a single individual, we wholeheartedly call on Christ to be our spouse and a source of every need, if we call on him to be husband, um, we can reflect that to the world um, just as powerfully, if not more. And so if we truly see ourselves as married to Christ and work on that marriage relationship just as earnestly as if we had a, a flesh and blood spouse, then we are absolutely reflecting Christ just the same, if not more. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are really turned off when um, Christians say, oh, well, just let Jesus be your husband. I think there's been some taboo kind of wrapped around it. I remember when my pastor told me that, I immediately rejected it. And I thought, that's just the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I really, you know, he's invisible. He can't do all the things. But he really, um, he really encouraged me to consider it, to allow Christ to be my husband and every single thing that I need. If I need, if I get a flat tire on the side of the road, hold Jesus accountable. Hey, Jesus, I have a flat tire. You're my husband. You're going to have to figure this out. And so every single thing that we would call on a husband for, we, um, you know, he encouraged me to call on Jesus to meet those needs. And I, what I found over the course of many years since then, it's, that was probably 15 years ago. But what I, what I discovered is that, man, Jesus is the very best husband. He, he really is reliable. He really is faithful. He's a provider. He's constantly loving. He's never mad at me. <laughs> he pursues me. He has a lot of resources. He's extremely helpful and loving. And he gives good gifts and surprises. And so I would just encourage each of you, if that's a notion that you've rejected, as we go through this um, this session that you, you might consider that as well. Just spending some time, even if it's just a week or a month, um, just making a commitment and meditating on Jesus, calling on him, holding him accountable as your husband, um, and just watching him show up time and time again. Um, okay, so then, so we have the Adam and Eve... We have the, 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 the Spirit of God in the union, and then Jesus comes as the, the big uh, husband of all husbands, and we see that he, he wants us to see marriage as a metaphor of the gospel, of his coming and his resurrection, his giving up, his sacrifice. And then at the end of the Bible, we, we read about the wedding supper of the Lamb. And this represents the very last marriage of all time. 
the grand stage wedding by which all weddings are dimly represented up until that point on earth. And it, it takes place between Jesus and his church. It's the climactic satiation of everything we crave in intimacy. When all of our, our deepest desires to love and be loved, to experience euphoria and connection, to be known, to be pursued, to be married, are met fully, completely beyond our wildest dreams in the, in the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is what we were hardwired for. It's the climactic moment of of humanity when when all of our the things that he built us us with desires hard wiring for for love and intimacy are just completely fulfilled every day of our lives whether we know it or not it we're living up to this desire we're 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 yearning for this day um and, and so Revelation um, says, then, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. So in this, you know, we see purity, we see the bride, we see all of these, um, the Lamb, the sacrificial symbolism in Scripture of of Christ. And... Um, and we see this theme of marriage that God has woven throughout his entire human project that prepares us for eternity where we will be his bride. We see this completely fulfilled. Um, in eternity, everyone is married, but not to each other. They're, they're married to Christ, the perfect husband. So this brings us back to our question that we're exploring right now. Was Jesus single? And I would say absolutely not. Um, you know... Jesus was has never been single and and Jesus is the most married human to ever walk the earth. Like he's the ultimate husband of all husbands. He was married before any of us were married and he came to earth for his bride. He he invented us with the concept of marriage in mind because he knew that it was the climactic moment of humanity when he would he would he would give us every single thing that we desire with himself. So um, he came to earth for his bride and, and he is betrothed to her, the church, to all of us as one united body in, in eternity. And he has, um, he really has the marriage experience that surpasses all marriage experiences on earth by, by his marriage to the church. In fact, when I think about Jesus just choosing one woman in this lifetime to be married to, um, it might seem almost adulterous um, for him to do that, to have an earth here, an earth, and a marriage here on earth. So I think that when people say that Jesus wasn't married and, and he kind of missed out, it might be like if a quarterback won the Super Bowl and, and, People were saying, well, he's not really a football player because he didn't play at his junior 
high homecoming game. You know, it's Jesus is married. Um, we, we are only participants in the in the concept of marriage because it was his idea, and somehow outside of space and time, Jesus was the first and last marriage entirely. So just um, yeah, just it, it brings me some comfort to know that we all do have a desire if we're honest to be known to be pursued to be enjoyed and to have that level of intimacy um and we are we we do um i would say crave marriage on on some level um And I do believe that our sexuality is a reflection of something in the characteristics of God. We were made in the image of God, and so, therefore, it's safe to assume that the parts of us that are sexual in nature are made in something in the image of the the triune God. Jesus knows ecstasy on a much higher level than than we ever could. Our earthly expressions are simply foreshadowing what is to come in eternity <clears throat> but it will be it will be a, gr- a much greater relational experience um i often get asked if jesus did jesus have an orgasm or you know very specific sexual questions and we have no um documentation that tells us one way or another but what i do know is that he invented the orgasm and I imagine that even that ecstasy, that pleasure, is a foreshadowing of something that's to come. Something that Christ experiences and knows in the Trinity um, that is just a little glimpse into that ecstasy. And I, I do believe that he has experienced that to a far greater um, amount than, than we can imagine. So hopefully all this brings us comfort um, to know that the grief and the longings of singleness for those of us who choose to follow Christ are temporary and only point us to a desire for Christ himself. Um, so when when clients are sad, it's not a full consolation if they're if they're single to, to remind them that one day they will be married but it is it is some consolation certainly not to demean the pain and the agony of singleness or or anything like that uh, loneliness and singleness can be a tremendous grief in this lifetime and can really cause people a lot of emotional distress because, I mean, honestly, to be seen, to be pursued, and to be known, those are our deepest relational desires. And when we don't have them here on earth, um, and we don't necessarily have that strong of a relationship with Christ, where we have experienced that love and that pursuit and that, that intimacy with Him, um, it can be a really, really challenging space. But, again, Jesus is the perfect example of marriage on every level and in more ways than we could have uh, time to discuss here. Um, 
So the Bible has a lot of instructions for marriage and for not marriage and for sex and things like that. But I definitely want to mention um, a somewhat confusing passage in Corinthians about singleness. And I know a lot of singles get very confused by this, um, this passage in Corinthians from Paul in Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 8, it says, To the unmarried and to the widows, I say, that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And so Paul says a lot of things about singleness, and he's clearly petitioning for singleness in this passage. And I have heard um, a lot of sermons that have been preached on this um, that I don't think really take into account the context of where Paul was coming from. First of all, um, Paul continuously says, I, not the Lord. He's making it very clear that this is his idea, that this is not his restructuring of the human project or marriage or anything remotely like that. He's saying that this is my idea. But it's it's important to know that Paul is speaking to a pervasively married culture. He wasn't speaking to America in 2020, where everyone is, you know, the majority are single. Uh, he, there was no allotment for singleness. It was uh, socially unacceptable, and it was even illegal to remain single. So Paul was being asked about window, widows and single people in light of the fact that Jesus visited the, the earth, the spirit had been left, and ministry, and, and all of these things. And Paul is actually making a case and pioneering for singleness in a culture where there was literally no allowance for singleness. Um, He repeatedly says it's his idea, but not the Lord's, to remain single. He states the reasoning is needing more time to devote to Jesus. So I would encourage you to reread the passage and imagine that Paul is not promoting singleness for all and saying it's better than marriage, He is pioneering the concept of allowing people to remain single at all. And it feels best for him to spread spread the gospel, to have time to spread the gospel and to commit himself to the work of the ministry. Um, However, even there he says to get married if if you're burning with sexual passion. So just wanted to mention that briefly. Um, Paul is really just really making a case for singleness where there was no case and he is wanting to remain single because he wants more time to devote to ministry unlike in America where there's tremendous allotments for singleness it's very socially acceptable in most places to remain single Um, however it's not mainly it's not usually for the sake of the ministry I know that um, if I examine myself, a lot of the reasons I enjoy singleness is it can be for selfish reasons and not necessarily just exclusively so I can have more time to devote to ministry. 
Okay, so hopefully we've adequately adequately addressed um, the first question, was Jesus single? And now let's shift gears a bit and explore the status of singleness today and what is, you know, what's going on with singleness and sexuality? Why are over half of Americans unmarried? Um, and why is sexual dysfunction and singleness, why are they simultaneously on the rise? Um, so, a little bit of history. Um, sex has become a compartment of relationships. I often find myself saying pets, porn, and video games are the new marriage. Um, you know, humans are living in the fantasy parts of their brains in ever-increasing amounts and have compartmentalized sexual and relational aspects. So those things are greatly divided, where they used to be just erratically united. Um, but But those things don't satisfy us. We have compartmentalized sex, pets, porn, video games, social media, all of these dissociative, fantastic um, mechanisms that that actually don't satisfy us relationally and just cause us more cravings. Um, We need more and more stimuli of synthetic intimacy and we never actually accomplish satisfaction. So, but but when did intimacy begin to come unraveled? Um, it, it began a radical transformation with the invention of birth control. Um, and I'm just going to read this. Um, Anthony Giddens writes, there's a book called Cheap Sex, and I would encourage you to read it. It it really um, it's cheap sex by Mark Rignaris, um, and it's the transformation of men, marriage, and monogamy. And it really compares sex in light of an economic grid, um, supply and demand. And it evaluates the sec- the sexual status and the history of sex, but. He quotes Anthony Giddens, who says, um, meant more than an increased capability of limiting pregnancy in combination with the other influences affecting family size. And he's talking about birth control. You know, um, birth control signaled a deep transition in personal life for women and in a partly different sense for men also, sexuality became malleable, open to being shaped in diverse ways and a potential property of the individual. Sexuality became part of a progressive differentiation from sex as a requirement of reproduction. With the further elaboration of reproductive technologies, that differentiation has today become complete. Now that conception can be artificially produced rather than only artificially inhibited, sexuality is at last fully autonomous. So what he's saying is birth control began to dismantle these relational um, functions and sections of, of, of sex 
um, it began to compartmentalize, and from from there, it was just a radical transformation of intimacy, intimacy itself, which is very interesting. Um, so Mark, in his book, Cheap Sex, goes on to say, fully autonomous. He's talking about sex. It's, it's about individuals now. It's not about um, relationship. That is not only separated from its long-standing association with marriage and baby-making, but free from even being embedded in relationships. The malleable property of the individual. Sex is like this, this thing that we can mold and shape. We can get pregnant, not get pregnant. We can get in vitro, and you know, there's just so many more um, options, and we can, we can make it our own. Almost all Americans take birth control for granted, and most of us alive today never inhabited a world before it. How did it change things? Giddens asserts that its uptake has, among other things, fostered the idea of sex as an art form, and it's injected that, that into the heart of the conjugal relationship, which then made the achievement of recipro reciprocal sexual pleasure a key element in whether the relationship is sustained or dissolved. The cultivation of sexual skills, the capability of giving and experiencing sexual satisfaction on the part of both sexes has become organized reflexively via a multitude of sources of sexual information, advice, and training. Sex was redefined with the invention of birth control. Compartmentalized sex. Birth control dismantled the notion that reproduction was the goal of sex, and it elevated pleasure above sexual encounters. The, the, it elevated the pleasure aspects. Um, so the highest expectation of sex was no longer reproduction. It became pleasure. So all this to say, you know, we, it's important to know when things began to kind of ricochet. Sexual dysfunction and um, all the things have existed since the beginning of time. But pervasively throughout culture, with the combination of mass communication and access to the, um, you know, mass communication increasingly so over the past 50 to 70 years, and then also the in invention of, of birth control and in vitro, um, and birth control in all, all of its forms. But sex wasn't meant to, to come untethered from the production of life and all the other uh, relational aspects of intimacy, but it has. And again, we, cannot, we, we can't rewrite the rules. We can't just separate sex and dismantle it and expect it to function as it was designed. The invention of intimacy cannot be synthetically replicated. Um, so again, we have to go back to our desire. What are we trying to achieve with the revamp of sexuality? When you look inside of yourself um, and, and, you f and you find your, your sexuality and you take an account of how um, your sexuality has become your behaviors, we, we have to realize that we're built for, for ecstasy. We're built for eternity. We desire um, the three basic relational needs that I continue continuously um, 
talk about are to be pursued, to be intimately known, and to be enjoyed and loved. Um, so those three things are what we're looking for, and they have kind of ricocheted out throughout the course of the past 70 years. And specifically in social media, pornography, the advent of the internet, fantasy, um, living in the fantasy part of our brain and the dissociative parts, um, our brain that disconnects from our conscious awareness and dissociates from being present uh, has increased significantly as well over the course of this time. The other book that I want to mention is called Unwanted by Jay Stringer. And he writes, The fantasy is an attempt to reconcile in their own strength all that seems broken around them. When we pay attention, sexual fantasies are messengers from our souls to reveal our deepest longings, and those longings are good. So, for the sake of time, I won't... <laughs> recap the entire book, but I can say it's one of the best books ever written about sexuali sexuality from a psychological standpoint. He really does an incredible job of articulating even like where our fantasies come from. Um, he is actually a clinician himself, and he speaks from his experiences, and I find those to ring true as well. Um, when I work with individuals who are experiencing different sexual addictions, I certainly, um, we explore like specifically the type of fantasies that they seek out, and those fantasies are often very very profoundly related to their unmet needs. Um, and so it's kind of like the body's way of, of creating a fantasy, even in the mind, to fulfill that desire to be known, to be, um, and, that, and that can become extremely twisted. But in his book, he goes through um, all of those things. And then at the end of the book, in part three, he has some excellent suggestions for healing and um, and moving forward, becoming vulnerable in relationships, learning to be honest and resolve conflict and to, to show up in in relationships. So it's it's a really, really excellent book and I would highly recommend that. Um, and it's on the handout and we'll we'll touch on it a little bit more. In, um, at the end of the, the session and the conclusion. Okay, so all of that to say, we understand the theology of marriage, we understand the status of sexuality, the culture is promoting sex, um, and as, you know, it's just as this, we deserve pleasure, and we understand how it got compartmentalized and untethered from the whole of intimacy. But why... Why would someone be motivated to remain pure? Like, what would truly motivate a person? Um, and so we want to explore now, why does God promote abstinence? And is sex outside of marriage, um, is, it, is it really a benefit? 
um, to, to remain pure, is that oppressive? Or is that legalistic? Is there a reason? Is there any evidence? Um, and so we want to we want to just explore that. So the culture tells us that abstaining from sex until marriage, it's not only unnecessary, but it's even an abusive form of deprivation and oppression. So is the freedom to be promiscuous really a benefit, or is it wounding? And most clients I speak with are unable to articulate the reasoning behind the Christian idea of abstinence. As I mentioned, um, they. One, they abstain out of legalistic obedience. It's just they were taught that. They were brought up in a legalistic environment where sex was shamed. And it was just the, the absolute worst thing. It, even some people were told that they would they would not be saved if they had sex. It would, like, interfere with their salvation. So lots of wounds in that whole purity uh, trend explosion from the 80s, 90s and even the, this this century. Um, the second thing is abstain initially, um, but, they're, but they're not necessarily waiting for marriage. So a lot of women I talk to, they really pride themselves in not having sex on the first date, but they wait, um, oh no, I want to get to know him, and things like that. So there's just this insinuation of waiting um, to get to know him, but not a lot of clear understanding why why wait even um, I know that people don't really always have language to to describe that um, and then thirdly have little or no understanding for abstaining and so they they don't they these are the clients who will say no that's oppressive I don't believe in that at all it's my body I want to be able to freely express myself and so they see abstinence and purity um, the, the church's rendition of abstinence and purity as oppressive and um and yeah it's 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 not it's not accepted so and then number four these are the clients uh, who have full-blown sex addictions um prostitution they've been trafficked and it's and it's due to various reasons including neglect abuse um and they often engage in open relationship. So the first thing that we need to do is, again, go back to the engineering of intimacy. Go back to its organic design and understand how is intimacy created. Like, when Christ was creating it, what did he do? What can we observe about intimacy? There are elements of relationship that need to run along the track Um, toward intimacy simultaneously, just moving toward intimacy at a healthy pace. So there are certain things that have to just happen at the same time and at a really healthy pace as we move toward intimacy. So when you meet someone and you, you know, the first date, whatever, there are certain things that need to happen. Um... And if one element of intimacy springs forward rapidly in a rapid pace, like sexuality, um, with a stranger, then safety hasn't been established and the other relational necessities have not been established and therefore it cannot function as it was designed. So healthy relationships. You meet the person, you 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 
you get the practical information, this, this act of being known and knowing. You just start to learn their history, learn about them, just the facts of their life and practical information. Um, the, the other thing, number, number two, and you can see this on your handout, these, these blue bubbles that just show these relational aspects that need to move along at a similar pace toward intimacy. The second one is physical neurochemical bonding. So just being in close proximity to another person is um, neurochemically causes us to bond to them. We can't even, it's very difficult to stop it from happening without completely dissociating from our conscious selves. So physically, neurochemically bonding with the person, we need to experience that. And then commitment. Um, we kind of need to gauge whether the person is going to stick around. We were not built for relationships to end. We were built for eternity. No matter what, when a relationship ends, it's wounding. And God forbid there's actual a, an actual bond in place, then it's super wounding. So we need to to gauge commitment. We need to establish trust and safety. Um we need to know that this person is not going to abuse us or harm us. And again, I'm, I'm really just laying out a healthy relationship and the organic design of intimacy and how it was meant to be accomplished. And then finally, love, <clears throat> love and respect. You know, we build love, we build respect, fondness for the other. We feel loved by them and for them. And so these kind of, and, and this is not all inclusive, but this is basic fundamentals of relationship, the pillars that need to be established at a, at a very healthy pace. If you go on a first date that never ends and two days later you're married to the person, I'm not saying that never works, but you're still going to have to go through the motions of building intimacy. It, there's no way around it. And intimacy building takes time. So again, if any of these elements, specifically the sexual intimacy, speed ahead without the others, it's actually wounding to the individual because safety has not been established. When sexuality is out of sync with the other relational pathways toward intimacy, it ends up causing more damage than it seeks to acquire. A healthy, a healthy pace is essential. Um, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, flesh which wage war against your soul. So if you let your flesh drive the bus and you're just in bed with this person the first night, God will forgive you. There's tons of grace. It's not, you're not going to go to hell. Jesus is not going to abandon you. He's not confused by it. He's not disappointed in you. But it will wage war against your soul. Um, and, and so that's just something that I want us to really get deep, deep down. Safety is a requirement of sexuality. Just think about it. You know, if you, where is the safest place to have sex? 
it's inside the covenant of a committed, loving relationship where you feel safe, where you know the person. And, and the, the covenant of marriage, plus the Spirit of God mentioned in Malachi, plus the vows that this person made to you that they will never leave you, that they'll always be there with you, that's where you can freely um, express yourself sexually. But when we have sex and those other things are not established and safety is not established, even if it's a one-night stand, God forbid you've been dating him for two weeks, you have sex and then he leaves you, that's a wound of betrayal. Neurochemically, your body's already bonded with him and those heartstrings have been formed and those heartstrings have to be severed. They have to be cut and that actually is wounding. So... That wounding can pan out in a myriad of different ways. Behaviorally, we can become more promiscuous. It can increase our need for intimacy. We can become more dissociative. We can just literally check out of our bodies. And these these are the clients that I hear saying, oh, it doesn't bother me at all. Oh, I don't even, you know. So there, the repercussions of that wound are a, a whole other chapter that we could certainly dive into, but we're not going to go too far into that. What I want us to grasp is really how sex and intimacy were designed and that we can't rewrite the rules no matter how hard we try. I'm going to read you this case study um, and it's, you know, the names were changed to protect the confidentiality. Um, this person is not uh, a follower of Jesus, but um, just listen along. Alice is a woman in her mid-twenties. Her father worked outside the home late hours, and her brother was physically and verbally abusive. As a result of her father tank being practically empty and her low self-esteem from her brother's harshness, she was vulnerable to male relationships with partners who did not know how to respect her. She often did not even see the red flags in relationships due to her vulnerability and found herself in trauma-bonding situations with men time and time again. These men often aggressively sought out sexual encounters with her, but offered little relational sustenance. Intimacy was practically exclusive to sex. Eventually, she internalized the lie that the only valuable thing her identity had to offer a man was her body. She went on to work in a brothel and eventually ended up in an open relationship with a man who starred in porn on the side. She sat in my office and tried to convince herself time and time again that she was comfortable with an open relationship. Through the course of her trauma therapy, she came to realize that she learned to hate herself, though she only, and thought that she only deserved morsels that men threw out. She was emotionally flooded and triggered every day in this relationship because the relationship was only exacerbating her trauma. She tried so hard to convince herself that she was happy being in an open relationship, but her heart, her heart was being pulverized. As a result of her childhood, she had a distorted understanding of what a husband should be. Because she believed the lie that she is worthless, she sought out partners in the world that confirmed that belief. She and I discussed how she needed to feel super safe in a relationship and discussed the elements of safety. She said... I guess I would feel safe if I just knew that he wouldn't leave me. Like, my heart would feel safe, and I wouldn't be so anxious. But with all the other partners, sometimes I just wonder if he'll fall in love with one of them. 
Though this woman was not a follower of Christ, her story proves that we cannot rewrite the rules. As much as we want to tell ourselves that open sexual relationships are harmless and trendy and all the rage, if we take a ridiculously honest look at what is happening inside of us, we see that safety, it is a requirement for vulnerability not to to be wounded by sex. And if sex was intended to be one of the most vulnerable things a woman can do in the presence of another human, the safest place for her heart is inside the covenant of marriage. And that cannot be changed. A woman's heart that is encased in the knowledge that this person chooses her forever and is not going to leave her is the most organic habitat for sex to thrive. And each time we have sex outside of marriage, it wounds us and it disrupts our sense of security and our sense of, of presence going forward. And many would argue that, that it's not the case, but secular neuroscience has proven them wrong. Even clients who are married now, but engaged in sex before marriage, express issues with letting go and being authentic and, perf- and feel like they have to perform during sex. So, try to bring this ship home um, and, and just kind of recap. Hopefully you can look over the notes and you can see just a really um, motivating understanding of how you can protect your heart. The, the Bible says to guard your heart above all because it's the, the wellspring of life. It's where life springs forth from. Um, and neuroscience is an interesting thing to explore as well because neuroscience, whether they know it or not, and secular neuroscience is really proving over and over again this design, observing neurochemically, neuroscientifically, the way that the body and the brain were built to bond and to connect and, and what happens during sex, the, all of the bonding that happens. There's a TED Talk um, entitled How Your Brain Falls in Love by Don Masler. And when men, say, when men have sex before commitment, they actually neurochemically reduce the hormone for commitment. But, when, but women tend to fall in love neurochemically during sex. So that's interesting. I would encourage you to watch that. That's also in the notes. Um, and to also learn a little bit about desensitization and dissociation. Um, repetitive sexual partners can often desensitize us to pleasure. And it can also cause us to dissociate from our bodies. Two repercussions of... Um, the wounds that we talked about a little bit earlier. And there's there's some information about that as well. Um, and because the body and the emotional state cannot be convinced of safety, you can't convince your body that you're safe when you're not. The body perceives it's in danger and it begins various dissociative and desensitization tactics in order to, to cope. Um, okay. So what do we do? We want to send you off with something practical. Um, you know, our, our sexuality was always meant to be a mechanism by which we get love and give love. Um, there's a lot to be said about that. We're single. And what do we do with our sexuality? What do we do with our desires? Um, first of all, 
we want to work on our marriage relationship with Christ and not reject that idea. Just reconsider what that looks like. Take some time, a week or so, and just allow Christ to be your husband. Whatever you need, just imagine that he is your actual husband, even though he's invisible, and call on him for every single thing that you need and watch him show up. Um, And then we can also understand our basic needs to survive, to avoid pain, and to seek pleasure. So learning to experience pleasure um, is a super important thing for single people to do. Learning to engage in, in valuable, honest, committed, intimate relationships. Learning to address conflict and really um, getting over our fear of other humans and addressing what we need to address in relationships. The road to intimacy is paved with conflict, so we have to learn that. Again, I can't stress enough in the book, Unwanted Part 3 really outlines all of these things. Um, Jay Stringer, he, he writes, he just writes about the way forward, transforming yourself and disarming shame. Um, if there's any shame associated with your sexuality, reach out to a therapist, um, speak to someone about healing from that. Shame is not a part of the kingdom of Jesus. Telling a new sexual story, healing from the harm that has been done to your body, reclaiming your body, leaving sexual sin and forgiving yourself and others for the wounds that have have happened to, to you. And in generational curses and soul ties, super important. So exercising attunement and containment in relationships, really understanding how to manage your emotions within relationships, super important. Relational health is the key to a lot of met needs. You can you can truly have your your needs met if you work towards relational help. There's so many books, there's so many therapists that can help you learn to communicate, learn to resolve conflict, learn to be loving and kind and to heal from your wounds, understand your triggers and on and on. Um, pursuing strength and vulnerability in relationships and learning to delight and savor pleasure. Um, So, again, savoring pleasure, our body, our brain, it it produces really wonderful chemicals, serotonin, when we we experience pleasure through our five senses. So, the best thing that we can do is explore, you know, a little bird chirping on your walk. Just understanding that your ears are made to to really experience that pleasure, that sweet sound of that bird, or to look at an amazing flower and just to know that the lenses of your eyes, to take a minute and pause and be present in that moment, allowing your five senses to absorb pleasure of the creation of God, of other people, babies' faces, a really soft blanket, a really hot shower. Really um, learn It's one of the most powerful functions of life and fulfillment as a single person to learn pleasure, to learn 
how to really savor, slow down, and delight in the world around you through your five senses. A, a delicious little morsel of chocolate or a home-cooked meal. There are so many things, but we miss them. We miss them. They're happening to our five senses, but we're not present with them. We're not meditating and mindful. Um, about them and so we miss them and so therefore when we're not present when we're not mindful our brains are not producing <clears throat> the serotonin associated with pleasure and delight so um, I put a few questions to com contemplate on the handout as well um, just some things for you to think about uh, when you're alone and and to really work toward relational health and some some goals for the future and some things to contemplate. So thanks so much for listening and please feel free to reach out if you have any questions.